0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome to Lake Geek is Live. It is Thursday night, June 3rd, the year of our Lord, 2021, jam-packed. I just spoke to you 48 hours ago. I think that's what we arrived at mathematically, Colin, two days ago. is 48 hours ago, and yet here we are. We're busy out there, and I guess I'm going to call it the newsroom. Really, it's just a bunch of cubicles trying to shave stuff off this show so it doesn't last two hours. Laptop looks a little weird, tilted like that. There we go. But we got a loaded show for you, and I can assure you it's going to be loaded again Sunday night. We got some wild card teams to talk about, teams that could crash and burn totally this year or could just take off like a rocket and really neither would surprise us. I'm going to hit several of them. I think we have one from almost every Power Five conference. I'm also going to do something that in and of itself could either take off or crash and burn tonight in the form of a segment. I was scrolling through Twitter today. I saw the folks at Football Scoop put up a a tried and true content piece, which is Nick Saban fill in the blank. In that case, it was Saban's biggest wins at Alabama. Well, I was going up and down the list, and I realized I was at a lot of them. I remember things about every one of them, so I'm going to go down that list for you, and you can kind of guess the games, or you can try and relive those games yourself, because even if you're not a Bama fan, you were watching them. But I have at least one memory tied to every one of those games. Obviously, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but I think we'll have some fun with that. And if we don't, hey, it's June, so it's cool. Transfer portal, winners and losers... Some of you, and I'll be honest, even our own company here, wrote that article or did that feature too early because things have been changing even this very week. So we have to revisit it. The transfer portal, the wins, the losses, I got a wild stat to throw at you. It's It's very much off your radar. There's almost no chance that you know this stat. And if you do, hats off to you. You should take my job. All that plus part four in our ongoing series, about Impact True freshmen this year. Hey, I was going through my DMs speaking of the devil this morning. I was looking at uh, messages. When I wake up, a lot of you are insomniacs, so I get DMs at like 1.20, 2.40 a.m. I tell you a lot of times, as much as I can tell you about the numbers that our show is doing and the traction we're getting, and I thank you for that, and I thank you tonight for that. But another telltale sign about how much traction our show's getting and how much validity it has in the mainstream of college football is if I could take you inside my inbox and show you the amount of coaches and other media types and people inside the infrastructure of college football from the administration to coaching staffs, if I could show you how many of those people reach out behind the scenes to say either, I like the show, I watch it. We got coaches, we got head coaches driving to work every morning listening to this. So it's really reassuring, but it also, it's not the kind of stuff we were hearing this time last year. So again, just another reminder about what you are making possible. So I try and tell you every show, I thank you for something every show. That's what I'm thanking you for this time around. All right, let's dive in because we got so much show to get to. Who would you say, if I were to tell you, pick out your wildcard teams, which wildcard teams are you picking coast to coast this year? I got a number of them here. And I don't think there's anywhere else to start but Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I don't know how you look around the country and say there is a bigger wild card, by the very definition of what wild card is, could be great, could crash and burn, than the LSU Tigers. The Vegas over-under win total for LSU this year is eight and a half. It's either eight or eight and a half, depending on where you look. But if you talk to LSU folks, you could find a lot of them. I'm not talking about delusional types. I'm talking about legitimate, dialed-in, logic-based, rationale-type fans who could paint a picture where LSU wins 11 games this year. You could also find what you would classify as the LSU hater. Really, it could just be a realist who has a negative perception of LSU, and they could convince you five wins, six wins max. Both of these exist in the prediction world about the 2021 LSU team. It's talent versus team. That's what it's all about with LSU this year. That's what it was about last year. When they got run out of their own building by Mississippi State in week one, I sat right at this desk and I said, there was only one football team yesterday. Sure enough, there was a collection of talent on the field for LSU. It didn't resemble a team. Whatever that cohesiveness is, whatever that intangible is, sort of the, the um, oh man, Colin, what's the, you know what, I've never laid brick before and it's embarrassing, So, I tried to go down that road. Listen, the stuff that holds the bricks together, the mortar, it's not mortar, is it? Anyway, they didn't have that. They didn't have that gel, that cohesiveness. Will they have it this year? Because here's the assumption that's being made. For anyone who wants to paint a rosy picture about how good LSU will be this year, you are assuming that that whole team dynamic just comes into place this year that didn't last year. And if it does, no one questions the talent. You look at LSU's roster, The team versus talent aspect, no one questions the second part of that. No one ever questions the talent roster. It's the team aspect. Here's the good news about this. We're going to know early on. We will watch them take the field early in the season against UCLA. I mean, that should be a competitive game. And any of this stuff that you may have lingering as doubt in the back of your mind about LSU, you'll either be vindicated or it'll be totally vanished. And you'll look at LSU and go, "Okay, game on. They're going to be a legitimate contender this year. So LSU is the first one. How about one in the Pac-12? Arizona State, a lot to like about them. They got a ton of experience, namely at the quarterback position with Jaden Daniels. And here's what I like about them. They haven't proven anything. They had a really weird year last year, as did a lot of teams. So they've got talent, ton of returning experience, ton of proven guys too. Uh, They have got really good pieces at running back, wide receiver, I hope is better this year. They expect it to be better this year. But I'll tell you one thing that I don't think you realize unless you dive into Arizona State, and that is when you look at their offensive line and you look at their running back position, they don't have to live and die by the 30-yard pass. They really don't. They could play a different brand of football than maybe you expect when you turn on an Arizona State game, and I think they could win. This team could make the college football playoff this year. This team could lose four or five games this year. That is the definition of a wild card. But I'll tell you what I really love about them. They didn't worry when they hired Herm Edwards about what anyone else was going to say. Because a lot of people had a lot to say when they hired Herm Edwards. Well, they stuck behind their conviction and they hired him. And then Herm Edwards did his part and brought in a really good staff out there. They've had a vision. They've never strayed away from it. And now they've put together a really good product. And it could be one of those delayed gratification situations we've talked about with other teams where, for all we know, the pieces and the dynamics were in place last year. It got the rug pulled out from under it. And maybe this year is where a lot of that is validated. Arizona State's the wild card team in the Pac-12. I think it's Minnesota when you go to the Big Ten. I had trouble here because I wanted to go a few different ways. I can't, in good conscience, say that Wisconsin is that team because Wisconsin's on everyone's radar. And I don't think there's a lot of variance with them. In other words, I couldn't see Wisconsin going 7-5. I could see it with Minnesota. I could also see Minnesota popping. Minnesota's a really dangerous team this year. And on a scale of, you know, one to 10, when it comes to the misleading scale from 2020, I think 2020 was really like a 9.5 misleading for Minnesota. They had a couple of games postponed. I think they played one game, Colin, we talked about this, with like 33 starters out, or 33, (laughs) it's kind of hard to have 33 starters out, 33 guys out. So I don't really know what to make of last year, but what I do know is, For argument's sake, this is what makes a wildcard team. It could be more of the same this year, or it could be that last year is by no means an indication of what this team is this year. They have got Tanner Morgan at quarterback, so they have experience there. Uh, They have got veteran pieces, at running back veteran pieces at wide receiver. Uh, They got a great big giant chip on their shoulder as a program right now because a lot of people are rubbed the wrong way with how pj fleck carries himself up there Uh, to his credit he doesn't care Uh, but a lot of people are rubbed the wrong way you know all those cliches they get tired of it and so what i'm saying to you is if you got an opportunity to hang an extra seven or ten on minnesota you take liberty with it kind of the way they do it with georgia tech in the acc they'll take a little bit of a liberty with georgia tech Um, It's your job to stop them, obviously. But how will they handle the Ohio State game? That's the big question for Minnesota, because if you look at their schedule, they open with the Buckeyes at home. They're going to be about a two-touchdown underdog in that game. If they win it, totally different discussion. But even if they lose it, let's say even if they lose it in blowout fashion, they've got a winnable stretch after that. You can afford to lose to Ohio State. You can't afford to lose three times to the same team. So is there a lot of residue coming off that Ohio State game? Or do they lose, lick their wounds, use it as a building block, and then emerge in the middle part of the season when they'll be on your radar again uh, playing another kind of national spotlight game and look totally different. So that's the wildcard nature of Minnesota. All right. Now, I talked about this a little bit the other night, but I wanted to save it because I wanted to push it to Thursday. The Ole Miss Rebels, I would say very much define what a wildcard team is for 2021. Some of these other programs, they have a ceiling on them that even at their very best, you just wonder what kind of firepower is there. Even with Arizona State, I would wonder until proven otherwise, what kind of firepower is there? Ole Miss is the definition of the wildcard team. You want to know how serious to take Ole Miss? Here's, what you, here's all you have to do. If you want to know how seriously to take Ole Miss, just walk around the SEC and look at the expression on someone's face when you say you're playing Ole Miss this week. It's not fun. It's not something people down here look forward to. I don't care if they're favored. Bama was favored against them last year. You think that that was enjoyable for Nick Saban to say, well, yeah, we won. I mean, they hung half a hundred on us. We did win, though. That's the name of the game at the end of the day. Ole Miss terrifies people. Now, last year, you understood as is the classic phrase around here, they couldn't stop molasses in December. So you knew you could just keep scoring on them, and eventually they turned turn the ball over and you'd get out of there with a whim. So they tried to address that this year. Uh, it could fail. And if it fails, then their ceiling will be well below SEC West contender caliber. But let's say a lot of these cats on this defensive roster, they tried to overturn wholesale over the offseason, <clears throat> which is a term they use, but we don't use. Let's say some of that works. Let's say some of it starts to kind of click when you're trying to turn that engine over and it finally turns over and the car cranks in the middle of winter. Let's say that happens for Ole Miss. You could make the argument, as I said the other night, that Matt Corral's the best quarterback in the SEC entering the season. You could make that argument. You've got Lane Kiffin in year two there. You know what to expect offensively from them. You don't need to know the names. Don't need to know anything like that. You can rest assured they're going to be you know, a certain level offensively if they have any kind of pushback, if they have any kind of cohesion, if a lot of those or just a, a fraction of those young guys start to develop a little bit ahead of schedule and they're going to absolutely count on them to, Ole Miss could be very much a contender because they are going to probably start 3-0. and They play Louisville in week one. If they get through that when they'll be a touchdown favorite, they will go 3-0 and into that Alabama game. And after the Bama game, their next two most losable games, their two toughest games remaining are both at home. They are Texas A&M, and m and they LSU. I don't think that's in order. Uh, Ole Miss could be there. I mean, they could be in a conversation towards the end of the year that no one expects them to be in when you go to SEC Media Day or you open the season. And in the Big 12, I think it's TCU. TCU is a team we've touched on just a little bit around here, but talk about them a little bit deeper. You realize they had the best rushing offense in the Big 12 last year? I don't think many people do. Um, so if you've forgotten that or you never knew that, I'm gonna tell you, because a lot of those pieces return... But it shouldn't be the case at TCU that you have to count on the ground game because the passing game's just not there. Max Duggan should absolutely be a quarterback you can lean on. Their wide receiver unit, and it's spearheaded by a, a stud there this year, that absolutely should be a passing game you can lean on. Offensive line failed them horribly last year. If they get even marginal improvement from that unit, this should be an offense that's able to surprise people this year. And if that happens, Far be it for me to ever predict that defense is what's going to be holding TCU back. I know they got some questions at linebacker. I think they'll solve them. Let me just say that. And so their first four games, if if you start to buy into TCU a little bit, their first four games, Duquesne, I've always called them Duquesna, it's going to be a W to start the year. Then they play Cal, then they play SMU, then they play Texas. You notice I didn't say they go to any of them. they got four home games. To start off with, they eventually go to Oklahoma. They eventually go to Iowa State, but that's on end of the year. We'll know what they are by then. So, those are the wildcard teams that I see in college football this year LSU, Arizona State, Minnesota, Ole Miss, TCU. One of these teams, maybe a couple of them, at least one of them, is going to be in the playoff mix come season's end. A couple of other ones are going to be just total tire fires, and we will look at the segment and say that we were both dead on the money and off horribly. That's the nature of the wildcard segment. All right, let's roll on here. So this is, the, um, this is the part of the show I was telling you about today earlier, if you're following me on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh, and I also led the show with it tonight. A little bit different feel here. So I'm scrolling through Twitter earlier today. I saw Zach Barnett from Football Scoop. He put out his 15 most important wins of the Nick Saban era at Alabama. And so I looked at him, and if you're a college football fan, that's not five years old, most of you are going to remember these games. Uh, For Bama fans, you're going to remember every one of them, but this has been the national program for well over a decade now. So most of you are watching every Bama game, or at the very least, you know what's happening. A lot of these are postseason games. And I I was looking at the list, and I remember every game. I can name you the final score of most of them, but I also remembered, or realized, rather, I got a memory from every single one of these things. So I'm going to run down this list. What I want you to do whether you're riding around tomorrow listening to the podcast, or you're sitting there at your computer chair watching the show right now, think along here. Because I guarantee you, you got more memories than you think you do in that bank of yours when I list these games. Number 15, Bama 41, Tennessee 17. This was a 2007 game. I want you to remember, Bama barely makes a bowl game in 2007. It's Saban's first year. But even in that year, they beat Tennessee. Saban's never lost to Tennessee been there a decade and a half at this point. What I remember about this game is right before kickoff, I didn't know anything about sports betting at the time. I thought Tennessee minus three was a lock because they announced that five or six Bama players were suspended for textbook violations. I don't mean a violation that's textbook in nature, literal textbook violations. Boy, hasn't the SEC changed since then. So yeah, they're going to be without five guys. A lot of them are starters. And already, I just think Tennessee's the better team. At Saban's first year. They would go on to lose to Louisiana Monroe in this season. And so if I could have gotten to a sports book, I would have laid healthy money on Tennessee minus three. Bama starts the game with an onside kick. They never look back. 41-17. That's the number 15 game. How about 14? Bama, 2008 Iron Bowl, 36 to nothing winner over Auburn. Tuberville head coach at Auburn at the time was true to form until the end. They had run up I think a 6 game winning streak against Bama. I was at this game and I remember seeing him get off that bus and he was holding up seven fingers. 7 in a row. Uh, they were a healthy underdog. They got skull drug. They got splattered all over Tuscaloosa, but I'll tell you what I remember the most. Before that game, Saran Stacy, who's an Alabama legend. If you don't know his story, I would encourage you to google it. He had his family had been in a horrible automobile accident. He lost children in that accident. And they had him on the field pregame. They presented him with an honorary game ball. Um, One of the most emotional scenes I've ever seen in a college football stadium, the game wasn't even going on. But it was just kind of an outpouring from, at that time, I guess, 92,000-some-odd people of support and adoration, just letting someone know, you're one of ours, we're here for you. And then Alabama followed through with their end of the deal. Um, But man, I remember that was a very, very rabid crowd because they tasted something, a rivalry win in the Iron Bowl that they hadn't tasted in quite a while. The number 13 game is very recent. It's the 2020 SEC Championship game. Bama over Florida, 52 to 46. And everyone's memory of this game's fresh. I won't spend much time on it, but I just remember thinking, how in the world did this team lose to LSU? This is the Florida team that had just lost to LSU. And so I, I remember, I mean, we were at this desk. It was on this show. I told you, I think Florida is going to play the game of the year against Alabama. They did. This was the best game Florida played all year. They ran up against the best team in the country. But I, in retrospect, I think this is the toughest game Bama had all year. And it was against a Florida team that ultimately couldn't capitalize on a golden opportunity. Because I know people look back on it as a failure of a season. Well, not a failure of a season, a failure of taking advantage of an opportunity. But man, if they beat LSU, they're on the fringes of being in the playoff conversation. You never also know how that would have impacted this game. But man, you don't remember it because they lost to Bama and then they lost in humiliating fashion to Oklahoma. The number 12 game is, ooh, nail-biter. 2009, Lane Kiffin in his first and only year at Tennessee takes the volunteers into Bryant-Denny Stadium. Bama beats them 12 to 10. So my view of this was stunned disbelief that Lane Kiffin was able to mount that kind of effort in year one, really outmanned as a roster. They also held Urban Meyer in Florida in that same season, a lot closer than people really expected them to. I'll tell you what I remember about this game. There was cell phone footage, and this is 2009, so it wasn't just all over the place. Someone shot cell phone footage of the ending of this game. It's probably still on YouTube. And the crowd noise sounded like a jet engine. This is the game where Bama had to block a field goal at the end of regulation to preserve a lead and an eventual victory there. But it was a classic survive and advance situation. Because, you know, public tendency is to watch the number one ranked team in the country, which was Bama at this time. You lose to an unranked, you barely beat an unranked team. And you say, oh, when they get down the road, they play better teams. It's going to cost them. It never did. This was an undefeated team. It was a survive and advance game. Number 11, this one was very emotional. 2018 SEC championship game. Bama 35, Georgia 28 was on the field for this one. We'll never forget it. I I think it's probably, it may be my favorite Bama game that I've been at because it was the one where it was the total inverse of the year before. Tua is struggling, so they bring Jalen Hurts in. He's been on the bench all year. They bring him in. Sure enough, he leads a comeback against the same team he got benched against the year before. Storyline after storyline after storyline. What I remember is watching him take them down the field and they end up beating Georgia. Uh, The raw emotion on the field after that game was incredible. You saw it in the postgame if you were watching on CBS, but up the tunnel afterwards, once Nick Saban in particular kind of got out of, public view balled his eyes out. Standing right there, watching it. Just very, very atypical. It's something you could only have seen if you were standing right there, but it also showed the emotional investment that he had in a guy like Jalen Hurts. Cause Jalen Hurts had every reason to leave, and he didn't leave, bought into every aspect of what they were they had long since built there in terms of a team culture. And then he was there. Not only was he there, he was ready when his number was called And he looked better as a passer than he had the year before, even though he hadn't started. So that was incredible to see. The number 10 games, Bama versus Texas A&M, 49-42. This is 2013, their second shot at Manziel. Now, 49-42 doesn't look out of place now. Back then, this was really that first time you saw Nick Saban be made to look really uncomfortable. And the first time that you really watched them play a game where it felt like they needed 50 to win. And that's, that's basically what they had to do. They had to score 50 to win. I also remember it was like 110 degrees on the field for that one, but it was a very uncomfortable spot for them. And it was a precursor. If you go back and you look at what they had to go through to win that thing, it was a precursor to what they were eventually gonna have to do several more times over the coming seven or eight years to get us to present day. And, and probably went a long way in convincing Nick Saban, I'm gonna have to change some things about my defense, but also I'm gonna need to do that offensively too. Number nine, Bama 38, Georgia 10. This was a game in 2015 in Athens, Georgia. It poured down rain. I was on the field for this one too, ruined a lot of equipment. This was a classic situation. I think it was a defining situation for Mark Richt at Georgia. That was a fan base, and that was a program that was dead set convinced. They were ready to compete against the best in the country that day, and they weren't, and it wasn't close and they got splattered all over their home stadium. And to make it worse, or really to make it infinitely worse, they had to go home waterlogged afterwards. In fairness, most of them were gone by the beginning of the fourth quarter. But I will tell you, one of my memories from this one is they were up five touchdowns on Georgia. This was when I think it was Nick Chubb, whoever the running back for Georgia was, had that long streak of 100-plus rushing yard games, and he was being held well under that and they end up breaking a long run, thus Georgia, to make it 38-10. And I'm behind Bama's bench, and Jaron Reed goes after Reuben Foster's throat, literally, because Reuben Foster didn't fit a gap the right way, and that's what sprung a leak, and that's what allowed Georgia to score and allowed them to get that 100-yard rusher. Um, Jaron Reed had to be restrained. I mean, something really violent and really terrible was gonna to happen to Reuben Foster had he not been restrained on the sideline. That's not even the only time I saw a fight on Bama's sideline that year, and they went on to win the national championship. Number eight, this past January, so I won't talk much about this one. Bama 52, Ohio State 24. Just at that point, Bama unstoppable, and it didn't help Ohio State that they were without a number of guys. So I think we all remember that one. That's the one I will speak the least about, even though sadly, it's probably the one Jesse has the most material for. Sorry, Jesse. Number seven, this was a national championship game that I just mentioned. 2016, it was in Glendale, Arizona. It was Bama 45, Clemson 40. I wanted to fly into Sky Harbor, which is the Phoenix International Airport, and the prices were absurd. And I was working at a station in Columbus, Georgia at the time. We were the only station out of three in Columbus that got credentialed for the game, but yet they couldn't sell advertising for it. So I'm told I'm not going to have my trip paid for. Well, I was already credentialed. So I said, you know what? I'll go myself. I flew into San Diego, much more affordable, drove six hours across the desert, went to the game essentially as a spectator, even though I was credentialed. So I just stood on the field and watched because I wasn't going to work for free. Far be it for me to work for free. And um, it was the time where Clemson was still trying to shed that whole Clemsoning thing, which I never said on my show, but, but a lot of people did. I thought they validated themselves a lot, even in a loss there. And so what I remember the most about that is Bama gets the win. Afterwards, Jonathan Allen and that defense, they're unhappy with themselves because they gave up 40. So there are more scuffles on the Bama sideline as they're winning a title. As the clock's ticking down, they're aggravated. I mean, they're, they're going after each other, and then they have to be celebrated and say, let's, let's celebrate the championship, then we can fight in the locker room. Uh, what's next here? Boy, this was a classic. 2012 SEC Championship, Bama 32, Georgia 28. This was my first taste of sports talk radio. In Columbus, Georgia, right on the Chattahoochee River, it's the border of Alabama and Georgia. Perfect positioning. You cannot imagine the buildup for this thing. And Georgia's got the lead, and Bama with TJ Yeldon and Eddie Lacy, they just take over on the ground in the second half. They just run right at Jarvis Jones over and over and over again, and they end up winning that thing. And you cannot imagine with the way that thing ended, Georgia, I think uh, they run out of time on like the six yard line. You cannot imagine how many calls we took on sports radio in Columbus over the next however however many months of callers saying, we were one place short. We just ran out of time. And that's a fan base that convinces themselves you know, we, we pretty much had equal opportunity to go kill Notre Dame in the national title game, and they did. That's how close Mark Richt came to a national title. Could have been. One play. Of course, I always offered the counter-argument, well, if we're adding time on the clock, let's just add two minutes and give Bama another chance after you score. It's not the way football works, obviously. Uh, the number five game is a very weird game. I was at this one. This was the national title game, 2009 It was at the Rose Bowl. It was Bama 37, Texas 21. This is the one where Colt McCoy goes out at the beginning of the game. Now, I tell you it was weird because you have this complete paradox of emotion. Bama has yet to win a title under Saban. They won their first title this night. But I remember a lot of folks, at least that I was around, it seemed like they were having to manufacture what they thought the celebratory nature was supposed to be winning a title because there was that lingering voice in the back of their mind. It's still lingering in Austin, Texas. Now, no one talks about it elsewhere, but it's still lingering and it's four words, I guess, if Colt hadn't gotten hurt, five words, what would have happened? And there was that lingering, just kind of not doubt, but kind of question in the back of Bama fans' minds. And so it was a weird feeling because I was at that game and the SEC title game a month earlier. The SEC title game was more emotional. We're about to talk about it in a second. Uh, Fortunately, I had other memories from that game. That was the one where I got flown out to L.A., stayed in Brentwood, right off of Sunset Boulevard, in the cul-de-sac where O.J. Simpson had once lived. Ben Affleck still lived there. Conan O'Brien still lived there. So I go from living in west-central Georgia, um, where you know the, the loudest sound at night are cicadas, to being in the middle of L.A. and being around a bunch of people who have more zeros on the end of their net worth than I've ever seen in my life, and so that was a fun trip, even independent of the game. First and only trip I've taken to the Rose Bowl. How about the number? Uh, yeah, the number four game. This was the 2018 s. or Yeah, this. It's so weird to see so many Bama Georgia games on here. This is the best one to me. This was the 2018 national championship game. This is second and 26. This is overtime. This is again a dream scenario. I'm working in Columbus, Georgia. I'm in TV. You have got the two premier brands in the market along with Auburn going at it, and it's in Atlanta. And so I don't know how you could write it any better. Well, here's how you could write it better. Have the game go to overtime. Have a total flip of emotion. Have a true freshman named Tua Tonga-Vailoa come off the bench and lead your team back and then watch him cap it in overtime famously and be on the field for it all that was my night. That was my experience. That was my view. Even though the game was in Atlanta, one hour up the road from where we were situated in Columbus, I did not get back home until the sun came up the next day. Time stood still. It was really a weird night. It was a surreal night. Still, it's hard to process all that we were able to experience that night. Um, Memory that will last the rest of your life. The number three games way back, 2008, it was the blackout game. Bama 41, Georgia 30. This is Matt Stafford for Georgia. This is Sean Moreno for Georgia. This is A.J. Green for Georgia. And this is the dogs trailing 31 to nothing at halftime in their own building, prime time in front of the world. There were heated discussions on the softball fields of Columbus, Georgia in the week leading up to this game about what was gonna happen. Because Bama had not become established as the king of the SEC by any stretch. They were seven or eight point underdog in this game. And it was so emphatic. The result looks weird because it's 41 to 30. Game was over at halftime. It's still not when they fully took over. It's just when they serve notice to a lot of the country. I'll tell you when they took over in a second. The number two game is the 2011 title game, the rematch between Bama and LSU. It was a blanking. I remember the supreme confidence Bama had going into that game. Even though they lost to LSU earlier in the year, they were so convinced they were the better team. I thought they were the better team too. You got to go prove it on the field. They did it in New Orleans. Kevin Norwood, huge in that game. I just remember asking myself early on, how does an LSU team playing in their own backyard look so helpless here? There was no secondary pitch. The fastball didn't work and that was it. That was all she wrote. But the number one game was the 2009 SEC championship game. I was at this one absolutely number one. I totally agree with the guys at Football Scoop. Florida is coming into this game with a chance to be all-time historic. They just won the title the year before. They're going for the repeat. They're more than a touchdown favorite in this game. And Bama, Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, they put on a defensive clinic. This is the Rolando McLean era, the Dante Hightower era. It's the night Nick Saban and Alabama took control of the SEC, and they've never relinquished it. I have never been around more raw emotion. That's the game where they showed Tebow crying on the Jumbotron, and it was as if you were in the Roman Coliseum and the entire arena is just frothing at the mouth, kill, kill, not quite that violent, but that's what it was like. Because at this point, they hadn't racked up a bunch of titles. They still had that collective chip on the shoulder mentality as a fan base. And so it was unlike Bama games are even today, where you've got a sense of entitlement, You can deny it if you want to. It's there. They didn't have it at that point. They went into that game as an underdog. They came out of the Georgia Dome that night, rest in peace, Georgia Dome, as the favorite going into the national title game and the favorite every year in the SEC from that point forward. So those were some of the memories I had from those Alabama games. That was really fun to read through today. And it was very opportune that we could do it in June. Now, I wanted to bump Bama on down the list on this next segment, but we are gonna talk about him a little bit. The transfer portal has just wreaked havoc on what I call preview magazine season uh, because you got to go to print at some point, And unfortunately, the transfer portal sleeps for no man or no magazine. And so even after you have gotten that physical copy of Anthlon or Lindy's in your hand, hey, things are still happening. So you got to make sure you got the trusty pen or the trusty red Sharpie in your hand to keep updating that magazine. God bless Phil Still for waiting as long as he does. I don't know how the rest of you do it. How about some winners and losers here? Because this is updated, even from the last time we've spoken. Oklahoma, even as the dust is starting to settle here, Oklahoma is still the big winner for me in the transfer portal. And it's really cause of Tennessee. Eric Gray comes in. That's an impact running back. Wanya Morris is an instant plug and play if you need him on the offensive line. Key Lawrence can affect your secondary in a very positive way. And Mike Woods, for good measure, gets added to an already really good receiving core from Arkansas. He comes in. I mean, Oklahoma has leveraged this thing the right way. Lincoln Riley has leveraged it in a way that you also would if you thought you were already pretty close to a national championship this year, and this could be what pushes you over the finish line. We're gonna have to wait a few months to see if that's real. Georgia, if it's not Oklahoma, is the other big winner in the transfer portal. And you can make a solid argument for both. I was doing Atlanta uh, talk radio earlier this week, and you know they wanted to argue against Oklahoma I mean, it's fifty-one forty-nine for me, so I'm fine either way. But here's what I keep thinking about. If you're a Georgia fan, imagine just taking a long nap after you come out of the spring game. So you got the G-Day game. George Pickens has gone down in spring practice. You lost your top option at receiver. You know that you're very young and inexperienced in the secondary. Okay, then you take a nap. And then imagine waking up this week. Eric Gilbert's on the roster. He's going to play wide receiver, no less but you've also added Tykey Smith at the nickel position. You've added Darian Kendrick at the one corner position. You took Brandon Turnage from Alabama, who either is going to end up starting for you at one of these corner spots at the very least. He's going to provide valuable depth there. And so you're looking around and you're saying, wait a second, a couple of these either voids or potential question mark weaknesses on our team, all of a sudden they aren't so void and they aren't so questionable anymore. It's been a really, really good transfer portal offseason for Georgia. Alabama, context is key here. Context is very important because if you just look at the raw departures and arrivals, you could be led to believe it's been a bad transfer portal cycle for Alabama. Well, it's been nothing of the kind. You got to know the context. You look at a guy like Ben Davis leaving. That's a former five-star linebacker. Ishmael Sopcher, at one point, was one of the top-rated kids in the country, ended up, I think, being a high four-star defensive lineman. Uh, ben Davis went to Texas. Sopcher went to USC. Brandon Turnage, just mentioned him, went from Alabama to Georgia. Uh, these are highly-rated kids. Keelan Robinson just entered the transfer portal. These are all good players. But what's happening is the net result is Alabama having a lot of the lower portion of their depth chart shaved and then they're adding pieces to the very top, sort of cherries on top. Henry Toa Toa is one of those at linebacker. Jamison Williams is one of those at wide receiver. And just as Nick Saban told you, that's the net result. You've got the rich getting richer. Georgia's one of them. Oklahoma's one. Alabama's one. But then we move on a little bit, and I ask you to kind of decide how you feel about this, because I've got my own feelings. USC. USC lost some guys, they've added some guys. But is this an example of rich getting richer or is this an example of kind of a program that it's not bad. I mean, Southern Cal's gonna enter the season ranked top 20. They played for a Pac-12 title last year. They're just not quite where they need to be. They're not at the elite level. So is this a a mid-tier program, a tier two, using the transfer portal to springboard themselves potentially into the, the presence of the other rich programs as you like to call them? They lost, guys, but they got Keontae Ingram at running back. Really excited, by the way, to see him come from Texas into an air raid offense at USC. Could be dynamite. Could be a game changer on the West Coast. They got Xavier Alford. They got Chris Thompson from Texas and Auburn, respectively. Uh, That's helping their secondary. But they also, as I mentioned, got Ishmael Sopcher, who's a guy that at Alabama was not going to crack the rotation. At Southern Cali, very well may crack the rotation this year. Taj Washington from Memphis as a wide receiver. So these are a lot of guys that could very positively impact Southern Cal. I'd call them a winner. I know they lost some guys. I'd call them a winner in the transfer portal. But here's the one I really wanted to focus on. Florida State. Florida State's been bad. On the field, Florida State's been bad. But Florida State's also a premier brand. So do we view this as rich brand using it to get richer, or do we view it as downtrodden program using the transfer portal to expedite the rehabilitation process? Because I think you could present it either way. It's well documented at this point that Florida State has landed six of the top 100 names in the transfer portal. Really big impact guys, chief among them, of course, Mackenzie Milton at quarterback. I want to know this, though. Because I think this is going to be the blueprint for new coaching staffs moving forward. If you come in and you got to overhaul a culture, well, you do that through different ways. But if you got to overhaul a roster, you don't just have to do it 25 at a time anymore and they're all coming from high school. You can use the transfer portal to expedite part of that process, but it's one thing to do it at a traditional brand. I want to know if a non-traditional brand can do it. I want to know if the Louisville Cardinals needed to do this could they do it to this degree? They don't need to, but I'm saying if they needed to, could they do it to this degree? That's what I want to know. I want to know if if a non-traditional power brand can end up doing that. I mentioned a bunch of winners here, but oh my goodness, there are losers too. I'm not going to mention a bunch of them, just one. I'm scrolling through Twitter today. Our buddy Brad Powers, really, really good in the handicapping world. He's going through a preview magazine. I don't even know which one he had, but he had it in his hand And he's a guy who updates the rosters in the magazine to account for what the transfer portal has done. And so Brad tweets out a picture out of all teams of the Buffalo Bulls too deep. Why is that important? Jesse's got a picture of it. I'm gonna show you why it's important because these magazines are freshly printed. They have just now been distributed. If you've got one, it's probably only a couple of weeks old. You know those circles that you're looking at right here? If you're listening to this, we are showing you a picture that Brad tweeted out that's the depth chart for Buffalo. What are the circles? Those are 10 guys already in the two deep, the projected two deep for Buffalo that are no longer on the roster because Lance Leopold went to Kansas very late in the cycle and he took 10 of his players with him. Imagine being on that roster, being a Buffalo fan. What do you do? Because this is a loser. You don't see this talked about a whole lot. This is the, this is the impact potentially. When you talk about haves and have-nots, if you're a lower-tier team, Buffalo's been really good, but if you're a lower-tier team, less resources, that's what can end up happening to you. You just randomly lose 10 guys you were going to count on. Oh, by the way, the head coach is gone too, but we still expect you guys to be on the field this fall. A lot of winners, but there are some losers. For all the winners, there have to be losers. I'm going to wrap it up tonight by doing kind of a continuation of what we've been doing, and that is looking at a lot of guys who you need to know the names of because these are going to be impact freshmen all across the country this year. We have, um, we've spoken kind of jokingly. I'm not really hating on preview magazines, but as I've told you at the beginning of this segment every week now, the big blind spot for preview magazines is they don't know which true freshmen to take seriously. It's not their wheelhouse. They're about storylines. They're about returning starters. They're not about knowing that, for instance, Xavier Worthy transferred from Michigan to Texas and he's gonna be one to watch maybe. Well, we know, or at least we think we do. So we're gonna give as good a guess as we can here. Xavier Worthy is a name I just mentioned. We're gonna start off with him. He's a wide receiver. There was a whole big deal made when he committed to Michigan over Alabama. Well, he's not at Michigan anymore. He has transferred to Texas. Now, talking to someone close to Texas today, that coaching staff, has every finger in that building crossed that he can end up being an impact guy this year. I say they hope because he's got to take a job. He's got to earn a job. You can't just hand it to him. <laughs> Players in the locker room tend not to like that. The reason he's so important is because he has the speed element at receiver Texas has not had. They moved to Sean in the first year of Tom Herman there. They had to move him from DB to wide receiver just to try and manufacture speed, elite speed at that position. Well, You don't have to manufacture it with Worthy. He's got it. The day he steps on campus, he's got it, unlike anyone else in that wide receiver room has it, but he's got to take the job. That remains to be seen. Travion Henderson at Ohio State, I've waited like four times to talk about him. I don't know why, because he's probably going to be one of, if not my favorite, true freshmen to watch this year. This is a running back for the Buckeyes. He was the number 22 overall rated player. He's going to be a superstar as a true freshman. There's no other way to put that. Ohio State has Master Teague. They got Mayan Williams. I don't know how else to put this. It's just gonna feel different when Travion Henderson touches the ball. He's 5'11", about 200. You don't have to sacrifice the size to get the speed. You don't have to sacrifice the physical nature in order to get the burst. When you see him in the open field, at the second level, in one-on-one situations, for the first time, your jaw's gonna be on the ground, and then you'll realize he can do some things no one else on that roster can do. They're going to play him a lot as a true freshman, not out of necessity, but out of luxury. Jaron Bradley is a guy that may be off your radar a little bit. Jaron Bradley is a wide receiver for Texas Tech. Now, he was our 373rd overall rated player, I want to say. So it's a little off the beaten path, I'll grant you that. But this is really interesting because of the fit. It's really interesting. They got an air raid offense they run out there with Sonny Cumbie, and Matt Wells is the head coach there. They want results from him this year, Uh, don't we all, by the way? But they've got multiple wide receivers to replace. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about Bradley. He's 6'5", 210. Uh, We call that a ready-made college football frame. 6'5", 210 is something God has to give you. The strength and conditioning coaches can't give you that in the weight room. He had a really solid spring So, I mean, the coaching staff out there is already all but assured of the fact that he's going to figure very prominently into their starting rotation, but if you combine the fit, the opportunity, and the offense they're running out there, and the need to turn it up a notch or two, that could be a guy, Jaron Bradley could be a name that by mid-season in Big 12 play is on everyone's All-American radar or Big 12, All-Big 12 team radar that wasn't, nowhere to be found, in fact, in the preseason. And lastly, I want to kind of combine these two names at Oregon. Troy Franklin was our number 40 overall player. Dante Thornton was our number 56 overall player. Both of them are wide receivers. I've spoken at some length about the potential for Oregon's receiver room. These guys are two of the big reasons why. Oregon returns their top three pass catchers from last year. So you may take a kind of a blimpse worthy view of Oregon and say, That's going to be tough for a couple of true freshmen to crack their rotation. But then you look at the pro football-focused grades for that unit last year. None of their receivers graded over 70. So it's a classic case of returning starters don't necessarily tell the whole story. I'm of the belief that Franklin and Thornton both walk on campus right now with as much raw ability as anyone in that room, and I think they're going to be impact guys. I don't think it's going to take to the middle part or latter portion of the season for them to make their presence felt. There's going to be a lot of competition there and it's a win-win for Joe Moorhead and his offense up there. It's a win-win because if they're on the field, it means they earn their spot and you got a couple of really dynamic weapons and playmakers on the field. But if they're not on the field, well, it means that that wide receiver room collectively up their game to the point where they're good enough to keep talent like that off the field early on. Competition, it's always a win win when you got competition in there. Those are four more guys, really five, that we think are gonna be impact freshmen this upcoming college football season. And with that, that is our Thursday show. Always thank you guys. Make sure you're following the Instagram channel and the Twitter channel. I call them channels because it sounds bad at Late Kick Josh. We will see you again same time Sunday night. Until then, for Director Emeritus Collin, for Jesse and crew in Connecticut, I'm Josh Bate. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and God bless.